If you would, please open with me to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in verse 18. Well, if you remember last Sunday, Matthew began his gospel with the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And the first point that Matthew is making to start off with a genealogy is so that we would know the legal proof that Jesus is legally connected to the bloodline of both Abraham and David through whom the Messiah would come. And now we can get a little confused here uh, because Matthew's genealogy is through Joseph and Joseph, as we know, is not Jesus's biological dad. And so what's the connection there? Matthew's point here, I believe is that not that Jesus was a blood relative of David and Abraham through Joseph, but that, Rather, as the adopted son of Joseph, Jesus was legally attached to the lineage of Abraham and David through whom the Messiah would come. And so there's legal relationships that we all have um, that give us rights, although we aren't related to someone that like, for example, in adoption in our society, people can be adopted to someone and have legally the inheritance and the rights of that family. Uh, In addition to that marriage, marriage is another contractual agreement or a a legal arrangement where there are rights associated. Uh, But as for Jesus being connected to both David and Abraham by blood, Luke takes care of that through what many believe is Mary's genealogy in Luke three, where it connects Jesus all the way back to Adam. So Matthew's point is more royalty. And it seems like Luke's focuses more to the humanity of Jesus, the second Adam, the servanthood of Jesus. And, uh, and so what happens is the lineage uh, shifts off when you get to David, basically David has several sons and one is Solomon. That's Matthew's genealogy all the way to Joseph. And then you have another son named Nathan. And then that genealogy goes all the way down in Luke's, it seems to Mary. And that's what most scholars believe there. And this is Matthew's thought process through his gospel, basically to give us a proof that Jesus is actually the Messiah. And so one thing is that he wants to start out with a legal proof. And that would be more of a Jewish understanding. Cause it, like we mentioned last week, all the Jews were meticulous keepers of their tribes names and who they came from and who they were related to because of all of that that identified them within the culture of who they were and what they were responsible for and what land they possessed and all that type of stuff and who the Kings were, who the priests were. And by the way, um, who the Messiah would come through, through the lion of the tribe of Judah, we come through Judah. And that's what all this is about. So Matthew begins by proving legally that Jesus is of the lineage of, of, of Abraham, of Abraham and David through the line of Joseph. But because Joseph isn't Jesus's biological father, the next question is, well, how did Jesus come about? Pretty good question, right? If, if Joseph isn't his dad, then, then what happens? And that's Luke knows this. He, I mean, Matthew knows this. He has a progression. And so that's where we pick up in verse 18, where it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. Thank you. When his mother, Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy spirit and her husband, Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now in those days, marriage came about uh, differently than our, our day Uh, back then. And even in some parts of the world today, marriages was often arranged, arranged marriages. How many of you know someone maybe from India yeah. And they, and you, and you talk to them, we had some uh, dear P 
people that we knew, Jayesh and, and uh, Bhargavi from, uh, from India. And they came here, I think uh, Terry introduced us to him, but they had an arranged marriage and, and you're just sitting there talking to two people with an arranged marriage and yet they're married and they love each other and have kids and all this stuff. And that's quite often how the world worked because parents usually know a little bit more than their kids. Uh, God started the trend and I'm just preaching here on arranged marriage because I think it's a new thing. We should start it again. Um, <laughs> God had the first arranged marriage, right? Where he arranged Adam and Eve to come together, right? So no, I'm just I'm giving you a hard time, but that's the way it was. Right. And so what would happen is quite often there'd be two families and they'd have kids born around the same time. And they go, Hey, you know what? We like each other. We like our families. Let's have these two get married when they're older. And so they'd come into some kind of an agreement. Well, what would happen, you know, it's like you, you wouldn't have to worry about, you know, who's your girlfriend or who, you know, that's, that's my future wife right there. Don't need to worry about anything. And so, Basically, when they would get older and when they get to about mid-teens, and that's usually when that would come about, they would enter into something called betrothal. And this is where Mary and Joseph find themselves in this betrothal phase. And betrothal basically is, is the legal arrangement of marriage. It carried the weight of marriage without the physical relationship. So it would be equivalent to kind of our uh, engagement period, saying I'm yours, yours, mine, we're going to get married in six to six months to a year is basically that time period for betrothal, but it carried the weight of marriage. That's why Joseph is called uh, her husband and, and Mary's called her wife here because that legally in the law's eyes, they were marriage, but it hadn't been consummated yet. The marriage had not taken place. The wedding had not taken place. And if you're tracking these things, you start pick up because that's a picture of us in Christ. We're legally, when we come to know him, we're betrothed to him but he's coming to get us. That's a, that's a bigger picture there. I won't get into that now. And so you're wondering if they aren't married, why is he getting a divorce? Because it was legally binding. They were together. And what happened is Mary came to him and, and basically said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pregnant. And by the way, it's from the Holy spirit and all this type of stuff. And you can imagine Joseph's having issues here because since the dawn of time, that's not how women get pregnant. Right. And so betrothal is, is more than engagement is a legal binding relationship. And it's while they're in this betrothal that, that this issue pops up and Mary's pregnant And both Matthew and Luke make clear that it is not a natural uh, conception. It is of the Holy spirit that the, that the child is conceived of the Holy spirit. And you can imagine Joseph is freaking out here uh, as this information is popping out. And this wasn't just a, a move on situation. Joseph wasn't going to go, you know, Hey, yeah, okay. You're married. Okay. Let's, let's move on. Let's get divorced. No, actually there were consequences to infidelity in that society. Mary could be stoned to death under the law. That's the extreme people. Quite often, remember, they brought that woman uh, before Jesus who had been caught in adultery and they were planning on killing her. And then they said, let he was without sin cast the first stone. And so Mary very well could have been put to death. But it is obvious that Joseph did not want that to happen to her. You know, verse 19 calls, uh, calls Joseph a just man in that he, on the one hand, he couldn't marry her 
with the situation she was in, that she had been unfaithful to him. She couldn't marry him. He couldn't be just in that way. And she, he also didn't want to put her to death. And so he was stuck in this horrible situation, apparently. And so what he was going to do is he was going to divorce her quietly and put her away quietly. So she wouldn't suffer any humiliation. And so that's what Joseph was determined to do. But verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that, which is conceived in her is from the Holy spirit. She wasn't unfaithful. This is God intervening in humanity and time and space. It's quite the opposite of what you think. This is the miracle you've all been waiting for. And so God miraculously intervenes and, and clears things up with Joseph. Cause that's what it would take an angel. Right. And, and notice that the angel calls Joseph, what son of David, arcing back to the genealogy there. And, 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 and he tells him not to fear, go ahead and take Mary as your wife. Don't divorce her. She didn't do anything wrong. And I suspect that Joseph, he, he kind of knew that in his heart, because if you look at Luke's writing, man, she was a virtuous young woman. She was a, a young woman of God who knew her scripture. She knew the Lord. And I bet Joseph did as well. And what infidelity was something that didn't track with who she was, I bet. And so this is important for us to mention here because it says that the, he said, the angel says this, and this isn't of natural things. This is a child of the Holy spirit. It's important for us to, to know this. As I mentioned in, 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 in communion because Jesus is going to had to be akin to humanity uh, yet without sin. And so Jesus is the second Adam, not from earth, but from above his father is from another. His father is the heavenly father. He is from above and yet he is fully man and fully God. And the angel continues verse 21 and she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. You know, the angel did the first reveal party right here. How many of you have heard of reveal parties? That's like a new thing. He like took all the, all the fun out of it right there. He just said, uh, it's going to be a boy. And by the way, here's the name. And he just like laid it out right there. You're going to have a son. And, and, and this is the point. You're going to have a son. I'm telling you what's happening before it happens. You're going to have a son and his name shall be Jesus. You're going to name him Jesus, Joseph. You know, you don't have to worry about baby names, all that kind of stuff. It's all laid out pretty easy. And what the name of Jesus means, uh, you know, you're going to call him Jesus or Yeshua or in our English, Joshua. That's the name of Jesus there. And the name of Jesus means God saves. Yah saves. Yahshua. He saves for he will save his people from their sin. And so Jesus's name is attached to who he is. And it's his mission. What he came to do. He came to save his people from their sins. Amen. But it says here, he came to save his people. Well, who are his people? Is he talking about the Jews? Who are his people? Well, first, uh, if you look in John's gospel in chapter one, verses 11 through 13, it says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so he was rejected by the Jews and he's rejected by humanity in general. But verse 12 says, but to all who did what they re who received him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, his people who were not born of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's a powerful statement. So it isn't a, it's not a nationality. We can sometimes grow up and say, hey, I grew up in a Christian home. I'm a Christian. Are you really? I don't want you to doubt your salvation, but I also don't want you to be deceived about salvation either. Cause this, cause salvation doesn't come through a church, so to speak. It doesn't come through a nationality. It doesn't come through a people group. It comes through a person and his name is Jesus. And by the way, the church is the gathering of the ones who are called out. That's what it's supposed to be of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Praise God. Amen. Those are his people. My sheep hear my voice. They believe in me. They received me. Those are my people. And not only are they his people, but it's those people that he will save from their sin. You know, we get kind of wishy-washy about why Jesus came. Yeah, I came to save us from, you know, like the Jews from our enemies. Yeah. In a loose sense. But I see a lot of Christians suffer at the hands of their enemies. Well, he's going to save us from X, Y, and Z, but ultimately what he's going to save us from and what he has saved us from is our sin. Jesus came to save us first of all, again, from the, from the penalty of sin. And we need to remember this. First of all, the, the, his brutal death on the cross, his execution wasn't a mistake. It was God pouring out his wrath on his only son instead of you, instead of me. Amen. Saved from the wrath of God, saved from the penalty of sin, from the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And also what that entails death, eternal separation from God as well. And so he says this from the, from the penalty of sin, but he also saves us from the presence of sin as, as children of God. He's uh, from the power of sin in our life. He's, he's, he's sanctifying us. He's making us more like him every day. He's giving us power over the sin that once held us. Amen. And then eventually he's going to remove the very presence of sin. He's going to save us from the presence of sin. That's glorification. Everybody's going, amen. That day is on the horizon. The day when this body is given, is, is done with and no more sin. Amen. No more suffering. Amen. We're in the presence of the Lord. And, and by the way, we'll be in a kingdom where there is righteousness, where a kingdom where righteousness dwells. And so Jesus came to save in the fullest sense from the penalty, from the power and from the presence of sin. And Matthew lets us know in verse 22, that this was God's plan all along. And he prop, it was prophesied verse 22. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the first of many times that Matthew's going to point out over and over and over that what is happening in that he's recording is a fulfillment of what was prophesied hundreds of years earlier often. And so who he's, and, and this is in, and again, Matthew's quoting Isaiah seven, Isaiah lived around seven or 800 years before Christ, somewhere around there. 
And, and this prophecy was in response to a wicked king named Ahaz, who was in the North there. And he had jeopardized Israel's security and safety. He had teamed up with some enemies, enemy Kings and went to them for help and all this stuff. I'm not explaining the whole thing, but he had jeopardized Israel's safety and he had jeopardized the lineage of the Kings and all this type of stuff. And God sends uh, Isaiah in the midst. He sends him to Ahaz without Ahaz even asking for help. And he just lets him know this prophecy. Listen, I'm going to save my people. And this is the sign that I'm going to save my people. There's going to be a virgin and she's going to conceive and she's going to have a son and his name will be God with us. His name will be Emmanuel. That's the sign. That's the ultimate salvation for my people. That's coming upon the earth. And Isaiah says that he says a virgin is going to see, conceive and have a son and he shall be, and he shall, shall be called Emmanuel. The angel just said his name was Jesus, that God saves. And it's not that just that, God saved, but God came to save. And that's the idea there is that God is with us. He's with us, saving us. That's one of the names of God is, is Jesus. One of them is Emmanuel. But the idea is that isn't just a, a person who appeared on earth. It was God himself incarnate in flesh. God took on flesh. Read John one, one John opens up or John, the first 14 verses of John. I'll just read John. He opens up with any beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Right. In the beginning is with God. And then in verse 14 it says, and the word, what became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal God became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us, Emmanuel. And so the first of many prophecies, God would actually be among us. Verse 25. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord, uh, angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. And so Joseph didn't divorce Mary. He did exactly what the Lord had said. He was obedient. And Matthew lets us know there's no way there was no uh, physical relationships in, in, until after Jesus was born. And so uh, continuing on in chapter two, verse one, it says now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the King, behold, wise men from the East came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born of the King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. Matthew moves us forward in time till after the birth of Jesus is probably a couple months after Jesus was born. They're still there in Bethlehem. And uh, anyways, uh, he comes, they come these, uh, and this is during the time of Herod he called Herod the great. I mean, when you're the King, you get to call yourself whatever you want. And so he's Herod the great. And the reason why they call him great is because he was great at a lot of things. He was a master architect. A lot of the things in Israel today, you know, Herod's temple. There's a lot of stuff that he, that he did uh, as far as architecture was concerned. And so he was a master architect. He was a, a master, um, uh, you know, military guy. He, 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 uh, he had military strategy down. He was a master politician. I mean, the guy was, he was great at what he did. And, and by the way, he wasn't Jewish. He was a descendant of Esau. He was from Idumea in the South there. He was from the, he was a kind of a, a cousin of the Jews. He was a descendant of Esau. 
And he happened to marry a Jewish, well, prominent Jewish woman because he's really good at politics. And the thing is, is that although he was great at all those things, he was very power hungry and very cruel, extremely cruel as we will see. And what we see here is that wise men from the East or Magi came from the East to Jerusalem, following a star asking about uh, where the newborn King of the Jews was. Now we don't know much about the wise men. We think we know a lot about the wise men, but we really don't. It just says they're wise men or Magi. And, and remember when I taught through Daniel, we talked about the wise men who counseled Babylon. A lot of people believe that these people were a group of people who were the magicians of the day, the astrologers and astronomy all tightly pulled together, mixed in with all this religious stuff. And they were, uh, they became, they became, they were like a tribe of people and they became priests as well. And they kind of were scattered all around the area and they kind of advised Kings in in the things of, of, of the supernatural and all that kind of stuff. Um, we even see possibly examples of that in the new Testament, Simon, the magician, um, uh, possibly being one of those, uh, one of those guys, but we really don't know. We don't know if there were three, they had three gifts. I know I hate to bum you out when we sing about the three wise men. There could have been 40 wise men. There could have been like two, right? We, do, we don't know. It doesn't say, we don't know how they came. We don't know where they came from. It just says they came from the East. How far East did they come from? We don't know. And so it's just silent. And we, we just know that God gave them a sign and they followed it. And the, it was the sign was a star that rose. We don't know if it rose in the sky or if it was a supernatural sign. People speculate and say, oh, it was the glory of the Lord or if it was actually a planet. I mean, there's books on this stuff. That's, this is what we have. <laughs> they called it a star and a star can mean a lot of things, but they, there was a sign. God intervened in these people's lives, whoever they were, the Magi, by the way, the word Magi is where we get our word magic from. And they followed it. Now, I think there might be a connection between the Magi of Daniel's day in Babylon being connected to Daniel, understanding the prophecies concerning the Messiah. It might've been uh, matriculated out there into, into their society. So they might've known that way, but it doesn't say, but we know that they came to Jerusalem. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were asking everyone about the King. Now, if you're a politician and you're not asking about that politician, then they get upset and they start wondering what in the world's going on. My power is being threatened. And that's what's going on there. They were asking everybody in Jerusalem, what's, you know, where's this newborn King? And they're like, what are you talking about? Newborn King. And so verse three, when Herod, the King heard of this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where Christ was to be born. Even though uh, Herod was not a Jew, he was very savvy on Jewish customs and laws and all that type of stuff. And he connected the dots. This is talking about the Messiah. And so he gathered all the, the, all, all the people who were supposed to know the history of this deeply. And so he calls them out here. We have this, the, the uh, chief, we have, uh, who are they? The chief priests and the scribes of the people. And he acquired the acquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they quote Micah five, three, which we have recorded in verse five here. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet Micah and you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means 
least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is 400, 400, 500 years before Christ. Micah prophesied that the, the Messiah would come out of the city of Bethlehem. That's where he would be born. Bethlehem, if you don't know, is about five miles south of Jerusalem. When I went there in 2001, um, we went to the southern part of Jerusalem, the city, and you, you sit, you stand there and we wanted to take pictures of Bethlehem because it was too hot at the time. It was during the Intifada. And so Bethlehem is more uh, Palestinian controlled. And so you can see just a, a little, a little valley that goes down and comes back up. And there's Bethlehem sitting on that hill. And in between there are the shepherd's fields. This is where Ruth would, would, uh, would, would glean the field belonging to Boaz's where David shepherded the sheep, all these types of things. So it's a very historical area, but the idea is there are a lot of sheep and shepherds around there. So Jerusalem, uh, Bethlehem's not far from Jerusalem. And it was out of Bethlehem that the scripture said the Messiah would come. Well, what kind of Messiah? Micah talks about this right here. He prophesies what kind of Messiah it's going to be. He's going to be a shepherd that will rule. He will shepherd the people of Israel. The word shepherd is the word for pastor, poimen, poimia, poimen, something like that. I don't know. I'm not that smart. It's in there. But the idea is that he's going to be a pastor, one who teaches, one who uh, leads, one who protects, one who who explains the scriptures, one who feeds and all these types of things. He's going to be a shepherd King. Now, obviously David's the prototype of all that. Amen. But make no mistake. Not only was he a shepherd, he would rule as a shepherd. And we know in revelation chapter two, I believe verse yeah 27, that he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And so he has got that double edged sword. Amen. And so the shepherd king was to be born in Bethlehem. Again, prophesied a hundred years beforehand. Verse seven, and then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. When did this happen? And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Yeah, Right. Right. Verse nine. And after listening to the King, they went their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to the rest over the place where the child was. And so this was a supernatural sign, whatever it was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Notice who they worshiped. Very important. Otherwise you've got some massive issues. Do they worship Mary? No, can't get that wrong. They worshiped Jesus. Mary, obviously blessed among all women. We know that from scripture, but not to be worshiped. She herself magnified God, her savior. You can read about that in Luke where she, her song flows out of her heart and worship to her savior. The worship was ascribed to Jesus and notice how they worshiped him. And this is important. Tune in church. What did they do? They came to him and they did what? First of all, what did they do? They bowed down. They fell down. 
There was a humility and a reverence in their heart for the Lord and their worship. They bowed down to the Lord. The word for worship here is proskuneo, as it often is in the New Testament, and which means to turn towards and kiss the hand. And we know that with kings, but it's often done in a, you know, in a like you better submit and kiss my hand type of, you know, way. But that's not what it was. It's just a, a reverence for who this was. This is the promised one, the one who's going to save the world. And here he is, and we get to see him. And they bowed down before them and worshiped him. They turned towards him and, 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 and ascribed worth towards him. And it was beautiful and reverence and humility. And then look at the rest of verse 11. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The worship wasn't only in reverence and in, in humility, but it was also through their giving of precious gifts to the Lord. You know, I know pastors will stop right here and start like, you know, let's do a 15 part series on giving. Listen, it's all connected to worship. The worship and their approach to God in their hearts of focusing on who is not mindless worship, but reverence and, and what they actually did with what they had. And notice what they gave equaled what they thought. You know, you know, quite often we can be cavalier in our, our worship of the Lord. I have been leading worship for a long time and, you know, I, I'll admit sometimes I can be thinking about a sandwich. You know, anyone else? That's irreverent. I need to prepare my heart to lead the people of God. There's the flesh that's involved in all of us. We can just come to church to worship God and get it done. It's a discipline to focus on the Lord. Sometimes it is. Amen. But is there a bowing of our hearts in view of who, who he is as I'm turning to kiss his merciful nail pierced hands when I sing to him? You know, when I, when I serve him, when I preach, when I lead worship, when I, go help someone or when I go visit someone or do something on his, on his behalf for him or when I give to him out of my time, talent and treasure, you know, I think this is important for us to remember, you know, that next time we walk into this place together, that there would be a check in my heart as I serve him and serve you and that there will be a check in your heart as we come together and sing him, there'll be a reverence for who he is, a love for who he is. It's just a remembrance of who he is and what he's done and his overflowing love for us. Amen. Yeah. Where our treasure is, our hearts are also. Our worship reflects our hearts for better or for worse. And they fell down, worshiped him and they gave to him out of their worship and the gifts they gave were significant of who he was gold, frankincense and myrrh. And we've talked about this, but gold, one of the most precious metals, right? They didn't give him plastic. Often symbolic of royalty. Gold is frankincense, a special instance used in special occasions, very expensive used in temple worship for the worship of Israel. And also in special ceremonies like weddings, very costly, not insignificant. And then, 
myrrh, something else that was used, a, a perfume that was used often in, in, in burial of people, significant things given to Jesus. And obviously there's a picture there wrapped in. Many have drawn the conclusion, which I don't know is there or not, but of his, of his life, death, resurrection, or his priesthood and, and his deity and, and his death and all those types of things. But there was a significance in what they were giving. It wasn't just, Hey, here's, I got some extra something. They're acts of worship and they were costly and significant and fitting for Jesus. They no doubt helped Mary and Joseph in the days ahead. Let's quickly go through these verses here. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. Here's the cool thing. If you're following the Lord, others might try to deceive you, but God will look out for you. Okay. Verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, rise and take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. God knows people's hearts. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I will call my son. This is absolutely fascinating. None of these prophets knew what in the world was going to happen. They didn't know how it was going to play out. And yet it did. And when Matthew is quoting here is Hosea 11, 11 Hosea. If you know his story, he had an unfaithful wife who was a prostitute. And his heart was broken over her infidelity over and over and over and over and over. And yet God called him to be faithful to her, to go get her, to pursue her and bring her back and restore her. In the picture of Hosea's life and actions and what he prophesied was a direct attachment, was a direct parallel to God in Israel. God was the faithful husband. Israel was the harlotrous wife. And what had happened is God had called Israel out of Egypt to be his son, so to speak, different analogy, his son come out of the world, come out of the bondage of slavery of sin, come be mine. And he did. And he miraculously did it. He saved them. And yet they were unfaithful, but God was still faithful. Amazing. And the picture is that just as God has called Israel out of Egypt to be his son, so to speak, God had called Jesus out of Egypt to be his son. And the picture is the difference being Israel was unfaithful, but Jesus was the faithful one. And while Jesus was in Egypt, another prophecy was being fulfilled, a horrible one. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem and in and around that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah 31, five is quoted here in verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, Ramallah, right? Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Again, God knew what would happen before it happens. The enemy has always been trying to wipe out the line of Christ. He did it with Moses uh, in his day, but God delivered him through the Nile and he did it again with Jesus here. And Jesus also Moses was in Egypt, right? Now Jesus was in Egypt. Pretty interesting. He fled, fled, uh, fled to Egypt while the people in the region were, were the children in the region were slaughtered. 
And so God protects Mary and Joseph, guiding them along the way until Herod died. Verse 19, he says, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph saying, rise and take the child to his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea uh, in place of his father, Herod. So another Herod, this is the dynasty of Herods that we'll learn about. He was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that there, uh, so what, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, uh, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now there's some loose references to this, but there's no specific prophecy about Jesus being a Nazarene that we have there, but apparently it was common knowledge. But Matthew, what Matthew is doing here in closing, what Matthew is doing here is opening in his opening chapters. He's laying out for us the solid fact that scripture after scripture, after scripture, prophecy after prophecy is being fulfilled one after another, that Jesus is exactly who he says, who the scripture said he would be. He was in the right place, the right time from the lineage uh, to him being Emmanuel, to his name, to his mission, to save God's people, to the city he would be born in, to the city he would flee from, or to the country he'd flee to, to and out of, to the city that he would go to, all these things laid out, to the children that would die, all this stuff was laid out in advance, and God knew what was going to happen. He knew all of it. And not only the prophecies are fulfilled, but we get to see God work in time and space and people's lives, working out his will. It's amazing. We see how God guided and intervened and directed in real time, leading and warning and moving and protecting and directing. And Matthew's recording this all of us so we can marvel along with them that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He's the Messiah. And before we get into the teaching aspect, so it's going to shift out of this and it's going to start doing some teaching here on what the kingdom of God and all this stuff Matthew wants you to know that that teaching isn't based on nonsense. This is based on someone who's rooted in, in the old Testament. This is the one we've all been waiting for and talking to. This is the one that God promised that through Abraham, through his seed, all the nations would be blessed, not just the Jews, but all the nations, walla walla. Through him. That he knew you were in the bondage of Egypt. He knew I was in the bondage of Egypt. He knew I was awaiting execution, the judgment of God and all these things. And he came to us. And the simple gospel was preached. That through faith in his death and resurrection, you would have eternal life. And he offers it today. It's beautiful. We can trust fully in him that Jesus Christ is the son of God, the one who was sent to save us from our sins. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we close, uh, we're mindful of your handiwork. Lord, this is the ultimate uh, sci-fi, so to speak, where you are laying out things in advance and they're happening before people's eyes. And Lord, I marvel not only at all the prophecies you've done, but the ones yet to be fulfilled, just as you fulfilled those, the ones that are coming are coming, are coming soon. And so while we look back and marvel, we look forward and marvel.
Come, Lord Jesus, set the world right, rule and reign. But before that day, Lord, may many come to know you. Many of our loved ones that are on our hearts who don't know you, who aren't walking with you, soften their hearts, God. Use us in their lives, God. As unworthy and as unskilled as we may be, use us anyways, God, to preach your gospel, to live your gospel for them. Have mercy, Lord. And so we just praise you this morning. and Thank you that we're the called out ones. May we walk worthy according to the call. In the name of Jesus, amen.